have you ever been, you know, somewhere maybe uptown or at Freedom Park or uh, the Whitewater Center, and you've seen a group of people having so much fun that you thought, I wonder what they're up to, right? I wonder who that is. Like, who are these people? And you, you want to know more, right, about their relationships and kind of what's brought them together or why they're here today. Whether it's maybe a group of guys doing an F3 workout at five in the morning or it's a, a group of bridesmaids doing a bar crawl uptown or it's a group of uh, best friends doing a tailgate. There's something about how much fun they're having that's captivating and that creates in you a confused longing to know what have they got? The reason I bring that up is because that's what's happening in our passage today. As we continue to walk through the Gospel of Mark, we read in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, to understand the context of this question, we need to know a little bit more about John the Baptist and the Pharisees. Uh, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Covenant prophetic messengers God sent to prepare the way for the incarnation of his son. You may recall from our first sermon in this series that Mark describes John this way in Mark 1.6. John wore a camel-haired garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, John was a prophet who lived a monastic life in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. And his spiritual fervor caused people who wanted to experience spiritual renewal to go out to him for instruction. And when they did, he gave them a particular message. And this was the message that he proclaimed, Mark 1, 7 and 8. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am, come, am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What John was explaining is, hey, God sent me to make you aware of how much you need the person who's coming after me. I'm going to proclaim God's law to you so that you feel fully known by God, but in that, you're going to also feel deeply sinful, right? That's what's going to happen when God sheds his light on you through me, and I'm going to give you a baptism of repentance, which is a way that you acknowledge, I need cleansing. I need to change. I am the problem. But the one coming after me is going to do something even more amazing than that. And that is, he's actually going to change you. I'm going to make you aware of the fact that you need to be changed. He's actually going to change you. That person was described by John the next day after saying this to a couple of his disciples. In John 1, 35 and 37, it says, The next day... John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. 
Now, John's disciples would have naturally assumed that since Jesus was greater than John, he would be even more spiritually intense than John, but the opposite was true. Everywhere Jesus went, parties broke out. He was literally the life of the party. This happened so often that Jesus developed a reputation diametrically opposite of John's. In Luke 7, 33 and 34, Jesus said, For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, which is Jesus' name for himself, we saw that last week, has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And who was saying these things about John and Jesus, right? Who was critiquing John for being too ascetic and critiquing Jesus for being too much fun? Well, the answer is the Pharisees were. In some way, the Pharisees were even more religious than John. For example, God's word required that his people fast one day a year. In Leviticus 16, 29, and 30, Moses wrote, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must fast and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. That day of atonement was known as Yom Kippur. It's the day when the high priest would make a sacrifice in the temple for the entire nation of Israel. And on that day... From sunup to sundown, the people of God would not eat anything or do anything, but instead would spend the whole day in prayer asking God to forgive their specific sins. Now, over the course of Israel's history, fasting became such a common spiritual practice that God's people embraced it at certain times, and the times were whenever they felt in, in great spiritual need. Whenever they were particularly oppressed or they were particularly distressed or they were feeling particular guilt, they might call a fast, right? You might remember that this is what happened with the Ninevites when Jonah came and said, hey, listen, in 40 days, uh, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. The king was like, hey, let's call a fast. Who knows? God might relent. And so that was a, a common Middle Eastern spiritual practice. Now, in typical religious fashion... The Pharisees reasoned that if it is spiritually beneficial to fast once a year, it would be a hundred times as beneficial to fast a hundred times a year. And so what they started doing was fasting twice a week. They would fast every Monday and every Thursday. But they were very public about it. They would make it very obvious that they were fasting. And that's why the people could see that John's disciples were fasting because they were grieving. John had been put in prison. And the Pharisees were fasting because they were trying to perform a religious accomplishment to atone for their own sins, even though God hadn't told them to do it. But Jesus' disciples didn't fast at all. Which kind of begs the question that we're looking at today. Look again at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting... People came and asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Which brings us to the incredible answer 
that Jesus gives them. Verse 19, Jesus says, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus' answer is, My followers understand something about me that is so important that once you get it, it erases your grief and it disposes of your guilt. When you're with me, when you understand who I am, it expels your ability to fast. You can't do it anymore because the party has come to town. So who is it? right, that Jesus is explaining he is. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the groom. Now, any Israelite would understand exactly what Jesus was claiming about himself. Because 800 years before Jesus was born, God had made a very important promise to his people just prior to them being sent into exile through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 62, 1 through 5, we read, God said, I will not keep silent because of Zion. I will not keep still because of Jerusalem until her righteousness shines like a bright light and her salvation like a flaming torch. Nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be given a new name that the Lord's, uh, that the Lord's mouth will announce. You will be a glorious crown in the Lord's hand and a royal diadem in the palm of your God's hand. You will no longer be called deserted and your land will no longer be called desolate. Instead, you will be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you as a groom rejoices over his bride, so your, your God will rejoice over you. What Jesus was explaining to the questioners was the groom has shown up. The groom is here. And because that's true, those who recognize that in me God has come to marry himself to his people can't fast or mourn because they realize that something completely new has finally broken into this world, and from this day forward, everything will be different for them. Jesus puts it this way in verse 21, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. This statement, too, would have brought an important Hebrew prophecy to mind, made through Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, 10 through 13, we read, Nations, hear the word of the Lord, and tell it among the far-off coasts and islands. Say, the one who scattered Israel will gather him. He will watch over him as a shepherd guards his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the power of one stronger than he. They will come out and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will be radiant with joy because of the Lord's goodness, because of the grain, the new wine, 
the fresh oil and because of the young of the flocks and herds, their life will be like an irrigated garden and they will no longer grow weak from hunger. Then the young women will rejoice with dancing while the young and old man, men rejoice together. I will turn their mourning into joy, give them consolation and bring happiness out of grief. Theologians call this the new covenant promises of God. Covenant isn't a word that we use much except when we're doing a baptism or a wedding, right? We'll, we'll talk about the covenant of marriage. And that's why it's very appropriate for us to include uh, this quote on the front of your bulletin from Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, where they say this, when over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. What Jesus was doing then, it's explaining that he can do that now too, right? What he was doing for them, he can do for us. If we'll just say, I do, to his offer to marry us to God by agreeing to let the truth of his Holy Spirit humble us out of pretense and self-righteousness so that we can be in a position where we're able to receive his unconditional affection, his grace. So what does that experience feel like? Well, it can make you uncomfortable because it's transforming. Look again at what Jesus said in verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. You see, unshrunk cloth shrunk when it got washed. Wine expanded after it had been poured into wineskins. It continued to ferment. But both changed. And the change put pressure on the old, such that the old could no longer hold. When you allow the groom to enter your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, he starts changing things. And the change is often painful. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in the quote we've included on the inside of your bulletin. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? 
The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing in a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Which begs the question, how do we know we can trust the divine renovator who tears down walls inside our heart without anesthesia? Well, because of what he was willing to suffer himself in order to make us a fit dwelling for his spirit. Ephesians 5, 25 and 27 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. You see, in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God shrunk himself down, and he clothed himself in the garment of human flesh, so that on the cross he could bear the wages of our sin, which is death, and allow his flesh to be pierced for our transgressions, and his blood could be shed to become the new wine of the covenant, which is given to you for the remission of your sins, and that Son of God says, drink of it, each of you. This is why I came. I came to make you new. I made to make you into something you could never make yourself into. I came to make you my bride, holy and blameless in my sight, splendid. Which brings us then to an invitation. And the invitation is, will we join him in this journey? Will we say, I do, to his desire to move into our hearts and to transform us from a cottage of capitalistic contentment into a palace of the living God? If we will, then we will begin to become a pilgrim. We will begin to move. Hebrews 11 puts it this way. He says, this is what this feels like. All of these people died in the faith although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Which brings us to the time we're in now. Look again at verse 20. Jesus said, the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Between now, when we have encountered the groom, and what the Bible calls the wedding feast of the Lamb, when we actually get to see him again in his resurrected glory and experience 
firsthand the unconditional love of God that cleanses us from all sins, between now and then, we suffer. Acts 14, 21 and 22 says this, After they preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You need to understand, uh, Flannery O'Connor puts it this way, the human heart vigorously resists grace. Because grace changes us and the change is painful. Um, If you are going to be a follower of Christ, he is going to invite you out of this world, out of the South Charlotte capitalistic American dream and into the coming kingdom of God. And it will require sacrifices. It will require the ability to love your enemy, to pray for people who persecute you, to take responsibility for your sins without blame shifting, to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to give to people who are actually stealing from you. Because that's what your living God does. The Spirit of God who came to get you while you were the thief on the cross beside him. Every day our hearts will tell us that we were made for a place we don't live yet which makes fasting a helpful spiritual practice. John Piper puts it this way in his book, A Hunger for God. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of this world. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Are we being lulled to sleep by the South Charlotte American dream? Are we wanting, you know, a comfortable home, great vacations, kids accomplished in sports, good education, a nice 401k, and a little bit of Jesus. That'd be great, right? Little Jesus I can kind of carry around in my pocket like a a charm. Or do you want more? Do you want the power of the resurrection? Do you want the renewal of your mind? Do you want to be part of the God who is making all things new? Well, if you do, then you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross every day and follow him. Because resurrection takes place on the other side of crucifixion. And if you do, what might happen? Well, you might get an opportunity to really experience God. So practically, how might you do this? Well, one way to fast would be like they did on the Day of Atonement. Right? Next week, we're going to take communion here. Maybe you stop eating when the sun goes down. And you fast all day on Sunday until the sun goes down again. Um, thankfully, like next week's daylight savings time, so you, you, know, you gain an hour. So it won't even be that bad of a fast, right? But maybe you take a break from your phone. Maybe you take a break from your distractions. 
and make communion with Jesus the only food and drink that hits your lips for just a period of time to disconnect from the world and to desire to actually spiritually connect with God. Maybe you do that. There's lots of things you can fast from in order to awaken in you a hunger for God himself. When I was uh, wanting my parents to become believers, I grew up in a non-believing household, um, I would fast for my dad on Mondays. And I would say, hey, I'm going to fast for my dad's salvation on Mondays. Um, and then, you know, one day my dad said, hey, you know, I've become a believer. It's kind of a long story how my mom became a believer and my dad became a believer. Um, and I was like, really? You know, kind of how'd that begin? He'd be like, well, you know, I'd commute into to, uh, New York. They lived in New Jersey. And on Mondays, somebody would leave this stack of daily devotionals, this little, you know, uh, daily bread, quiet times. And I would just pick one up on the train on the way in because I could tell that you and your mom had something that I didn't have. Well, before I'd been fasting for my dad's salvation, I'd fasted for my mom's salvation. She had become a believer first. And I would, I would fast for her on Tuesday. And uh, when my mom became a believer, I was like, Mom, hey, kind of tell me about how you became a believer. Oh, you know, I would go walking on Tuesdays with this woman, Sherry, in my neighborhood. And, you know, she was a real believer like you, and we would have these conversations, and she would say things like, you know, uh, Jackie, it seems like you're holding Christianity to a standard that you don't hold anything else to in your life. And I realized, oh, she's right. Like, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not being fair here. And so, in some amazing way, God intended to save my parents, and he drew my attention to the day and the way he was going to do it, right? Like, he, he, he focused me. He gave me a hunger, a spiritual hunger for their salvation that led me to fast for their salvation that allowed me to see his grace at work in their lives in a way that is amazing. And he may do the same for you. And if he does... What will happen? You'll rejoice. You'll rejoice. Because as you, we see in our passage today, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And that can be you when you receive the groom who came to marry you to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the bridegroom and that you laid your life down so that you could present us to yourself spotless and blameless. Thank you, Lord, that you find us splendid enough to want to lay your life down for. Lord, we are both unworthy and of great worth because of your grace. We pray now that you would help us to receive you into our hearts so that we might know that we are fully known and truly loved. And we ask this in your name. Amen.